the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. It's the Seth Liebson Show, but the dulcet tones of Seth's voice are not emanating from your radio speaker. No, instead, it is I, Hugh Hallman, uh, joined by Lewis Hallman, who didn't get a word in edgewise, really, in the last hour. And so we are going to focus on things domestic, although I think he's got some follow-up with uh, uh, the comments made by General McGuire and our discussions about Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and Russia, and the uh, failures of the Biden administration in, uh, in Afghanistan. Lou, what are your thoughts? That uh, we live in a world now where Russia and China can both be accurately described as near-peer competitors. This is a very important distinction because it means ultimately that when the United States is negotiating with those powers – that it does so from a, an implicit position of strength. We have a stronger military than either uh, uh, China or Russia. We have a more productive economy and logistical system. And we have a polity that can survive disagreement and exposure. This is why, even if America were to demilitarize significantly, American ideology presents a functioning alternative and thus an existential threat to both China and Russia. So whenever the word existential is used in a sentence, I always get a little nervous because it's never clear to me what anybody means by existential other than the entire existence of the thing. Let me give you and an how example. How do you think that matters here? Uh, let me give you three parallel examples. The liberalization in the communist systems of Hungary in the 1950s, of the Czech Republic in or Czechoslovakia in 19, uh, the 1960s, and then the fall of the Soviet Union with the Russian collapse in 1991. What happened in these scenarios is that the communists in charge elected to try to liberalize. They wanted the benefits of the, de the democratic system that they were in competition with, right? The ability to generate growth that in China has now lifted 300 million people or more out of poverty over the last 30 years. Um, but when they, whenever they did that, the problem is, is that, that communism is totalizing. You either have a monopoly of force or you do not. And if you liberalize your political system, then suddenly it can't be a one-party system anymore. People get ideas and want to create alternatives. And that then self-implodes the system as we see. Xi Jinping is clearly and, and very aware of this issue. He is a student of the Soviet collapse's history principally. He studied how Gorbachev uh, liberalized and watched the entire society. He had built collapse, destroy, uh, become destroyed out from under him. How do you think uh, Xi Jinping is doing it differently? I think that he is not encouraging or allowing or permitting political um, uh, pluralization, and that he is in many ways taken the fruits of the last thirty years of economic expansion decided enough is enough and is now doubling down on the old communist rhetoric of redistribution of wealth and resources. You can see this in his attack of the 
uh, the technology class, the business owners, the over CEOs. Over the last two years. Over the, exactly, and their suppression. You know, China is uh, entering what it calls common prosperity politics. And so the reason I, I spend a lot of time belaboring the point about the, the vulnerability existentially that the Chinese polity faces when faced with alternatives is that this is a threat then that does not go away even if America is peaceful and deploys troops nowhere near China. It is a threat that exists to Chinese power and control simply because America exists. And that is what I mean by existential. And so how do you then see that playing out with Vladimir Putin and Russia, for example? Vladimir Putin has a similar and different position from Xi Jinping. Both Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are facing demographic collapses. They're facing... Uh, sort of a, a decreased ability to provide the kind of growth gains that have kept their systems afloat. But I see uh, Vladimir Putin as much more analogous to the Soviet construction after the Versailles Treaty, in, after World War I, because Putin then came, comes to power at a position where Russia's old strategic order has been removed and a new reality was imposed upon it. And he is desperately concerned with manufacturing the means and abilities to renegotiate that strategic reality, which is principally why he's in Ukraine. The the point being is that liberalization is going to cause the collapse of these societies. Right. That Xi Jinping has decided that that process was perhaps starting. We saw the, the uh, tech class being brought – in for questioning and under scrutiny and losing their positions and their companies. Right. And we, it, we see now athletes, Chinese athletes who have risen in the society's uh, view as, as stars, as, as important persona, uh, being moved off stage. We're seeing the same thing happening with uh, other kinds of uh, personalities in, in China that have been viewed by the population as important people. You also see the newly allowed and expanded control of over life chances and day-to-day -day activities that COVID-19 has bestowed, not Examples. just. So, for instance, the ability to uh, lock one's own citizens in quarantine camps or weld them into their homes in China or you know, require that no one can go outside so that the state will bring you your food if you do not have it, causing an unknown amount of famine and horror that we just can't penetrate because the journalists that would talk about it are not allowed in China. And the whole notion of transparency as the U.S. uses – as Western reporters and U.S. persona use Western standards what for what is fair and right – the only places where we get the kind of information to make decent assessments of whether or not a liberal standard of, of uh, uh, ethics are being applied are in those places that have greater transparency and so are more easily targeted for attack. I'm going to use Kazakhstan as an example. Sure. A relatively transparent society in which we get a lot of information and uh, having traveled there extensively for almost 30 years uh, with no concerns about uh, – uh, areas I could enter or not enter, conversations I could have or not have. Uh, the West, because of that transparency, has a lower opinion of, of Kazakhstan, a relatively open society, than we do of China. The Western press uh, tends to lionize the Chinese miracle of economic expansion, minimize the uh, complaints about the uh, imposition of uh, 
of punishment for uh, expressing counter views. And yet in Kazakhstan, where, yes, it is true, there were about 227 people who died in the, quote, peaceful protests, unquote, the press, once it started its narrative about those peaceful protests and all these peaceful protesters were shot, paid little attention and only a few reporters bothered to cover the real news story happening on the ground, which was armed camps uh, fighting for control uh, with an attempted coup taking place of what is otherwise a, a democratically elected president. And that coup attempt got stopped. The fact that uh, that President Takayev, the president of Kazakhstan, had to rely on Russia for help uh, and the uh, CSTO, uh, the uh, collective security uh, treaty organization to, uh, of the nations in that part of the world to help bring order back was because his other choices were Turkey, which carries with it all kinds of religious uh, challenges. And uh, historical grievance. Uh, significantly, or China, which, of course, had also overridden the country uh, a few hundred years ago. And so the choices weren't very good. They could not now turn to the United States as a sensible partner because of our fecklessness with respect to how we'd handled Afghanistan and that we had then uh, put our allies in Kazakhstan and the countries of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan at risk from uh, Taliban terrorists uh, eking out of the country and into their country in order to cause havoc there as well as to make their way back to Europe where, if we've forgotten, just three and four years ago, uh, the terrorists were blowing things up in, in London and France and other places uh, and how quickly we've forgotten that. Those are real problems and these countries are right on the border of crazy and yet that existential threat that we're talking about in China and in Russia being very real means that those societies are closed to us, that the transparency is reduced, and we have a much less uh, clear understanding of what's going on in a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. um, your sense about then, Lewis, uh, we may take a break here shortly, uh, about how things are going to play out then between Russia and Ukraine uh, when we come back, I'd like to pick your brain about uh, what you think the cards are that Vladimir Putin wants to play and how those play out. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We are grateful to our friend Seth Liebson for allowing us to fill in here on KKNT 960 The Patriot to have an opportunity to discuss things with you. Please, uh, if you'd like, uh, join the conversation. Uh, we are happy to take your call here at uh, The Patriot, or you can listen to us online. We look forward to chatting with you shortly. That's right. Here comes the son, Lewis Hallman. My son <laughs> is uh, going to fill us in a little bit more on uh, the kinds of things that we've been discussing and his thoughts on maybe how it plays out in the discourse that's going on in this country. So, Lou, your turn for the floor, at least the microphone. All right. Let's do it. So we were talking in the last segment about sort of the existential security threat that Russia and China share, which is that their systems do not tolerate internal dissent and that by nature simply of existing, the United States can provide that influence, which is, as we, as we discussed, existentially dangerous. An for, example of how else it can be done. Right. That's all you need. Once you, once you see that, you know, then people get silly ideas about forming their own parties and pluralistic societies and the benefits that they may bring. How are you going to keep them in the gulag once they've seen New York City? Or if they can read. Indeed. Right. So the 
the issue that we have as a society is one uh, of unity and political thought. You know, we, we perceive ourselves in some way as being more disjointed, almost schizophrenic, if I may use the term uh, politically, than, than we've ever been. You know, you hear endless ranting about fake news and polarization and all sorts of other social issues that really boil down to one concept, that we don't think alike, that there's not a broad-based consensus among 330 million people spanning 4,000 miles and living in every biome on Earth as to what the best civilization looks like. And it's a hard, it's a hard needle to thread to take that much information in and come up with something concise and universal. And the key issue is that I think that this idea of disinformation and polarization, that these are very much Russell conjugations. And what I mean by that is an alternative hidden way to phrase something, right? I, I, uh, I changed my mind. You flip-flopped. That would be an example of a Russell conjugation, something that emotionally favors the arguer, yet conveys no actual difference. This is a trick that journalists love. I encourage anyone reading any journalistic uh, uh, article to note the instances of Russell conjugations, how and when they're used. It is a delightful game. Anyway, so we have disunity. We have disinformation. But I would argue that it would be radically unusual if we didn't have polarization and information, as it's called, if we didn't have disunity, if we didn't have what we might more charitably call diversity of thought, we need diversity of thought. In many ways, it is the cornerstone of our pluralism and our society. And yet, for some reason, we are trying to make it into the instrument that we claim is killing us. And I don't think that that's nearly accurate enough. The whole point that the pluralism gives rise to a diversity of thought, which I have argued in the past, assures that we create better ideas. Right. Because we have such different perspectives. If we allow the process of discussion to take place in some civil way, we can then figure out what the best solutions might be today to some problem in contrast to the solution we crafted a year ago that was wrong. For example – we couldn't have diversity of opinion and discussion of information about COVID. We're going to talk about this in the next hour. How diversity of views could have allowed us to get better policy results. And your point is that the absence of that is really what is – There's no uh, surer sign of totalitarianism than everybody agreeing on everything. Whether they like it or not. Right. Yeah. Political power, as Mao Zedong wrote, comes out of the barrel of a gun. And ultimately uh, – is then spoken by those all whom agree because right. if they don't agree, they don't exist or not for long. Right. As uh, Macron wrote and, and said in a speech recently. This is a fabulous one. So we're talking about the president of France, France yes. as one example. Yes, that the unvaccinated, he says, are irresponsible and someone who is irresponsible is not a citizen. It's a profound and dangerous othering of one's own population. I believe that the central goal of a nation state is to advance the interests of its citizens. The reason that Hitler and Stalin and Mao were the great monsters of the 20th century is because this is precisely the compact they violated. They rounded up systematically and exterminated huge swaths of their subpopulation their own, for, for their, their own, own enrichment. Yeah. 
So they used murder as a tool right. to enrich themselves and their friends who were selected from the population as those who should benefit. And yet these people and the intellectual inheritors of those regimes and system would muddy the water, claim polarization and misinformation in the United States, and in doing so, obfuscate the moral high ground. And as a result, gain power to themselves right. and point to the fact that since you don't agree with me, we're polarized, polarization is bad. Therefore, uh, you must be evil. Therefore, you must be evil and I should be in charge. In fact, I think our friend Seth makes this point most ably about specifically the current debate over Black Lives Matter and critical race theory, sure. which is basing itself in the notion that the South won the Civil War. They are espousing exactly the kinds of uh, of terms that should be imposed on our society that the Civil War demonstrated would lose, right. that the North was all about the Abraham Lincoln notion that all people are created equal and that the failings of the Constitution in its first iteration and the reason for the Civil War was that the compromise that was contained in that document left open the question of true equality. And it was Republicans and Republicans from the North in particular, a party entirely created ultimately that elected Lincoln in 1860, the very first president elected, a party that was not yet 10 years old, created on the notion that all people are created equal and should have the right to exercise their individual liberty to create the most for their own lives. It's precisely this sort of vengeful, revisionist ahistoric drive for redistribution that that drives so much of the excess that we see on the left it is it is making blood and soil rhetoric fashionable again and that is a terrifying world to live in well these are all people who were pointing to donald trump as the incivil person who right. who was a, a fascist when in fact the folks who were espousing the fascist diktats are the people on the left who believe that only their opinion should matter and only they should rule. May we call them authoritarian rather than fascist? I don't like being pigeonholed by using a slightly incorrect term and it makes it much more easy to uh, – Certainly. Totalitarian is correct or authoritarians at least. Right. Uh, that these are people who want to uh, conserve power to themselves, wield that power to uh, dictate what the answers and solutions are. And we saw that again. We'll talk about this in the 5 o'clock hour with the use of COVID as a policymaking right. tool. It's a strategy that's characterized by a profound and deep lack of intellectual humility, I find, that – I believe we call that hubris. Yes, that you see yourself as the unique arbiter of morality and public good and then view the rest of society as an overseal in a slaughterhouse views its livestock as bleeding animals to be processed through the machine as efficiently as possible. So this way to the abattoir – uh, we we have the uh, the sword wielded by none other than uh, Joe Biden, who insists that we all have to follow his policy dictates. It was his own uh, secretary for uh, information who just recently told us that the president and his administration weren't all about lockdowns. They they weren't pro lockdown. What now? We're going to talk about that in the 5 o'clock hour, about how crazy policy has been. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We're filling in for our good friend Seth Leibson here on 960 The Patriot, KKNT. We hope you'll join the conversation. No, we're not in West Virginia. We're in the state of Arizona. And we are happy to have you join us 
I'm Hugh Hallman filling in for Seth Liebson, of course, joined by my son, Lewis Hallman, the better-looking, smarter, and uh, taller uh, one of us. If you'd like to join the conversation, please do call 602-508-0960 to join me and Lewis. We're talking about uh, sort of things bipolar. How did we get to a point in which uh, things are either zero or one, or as the press likes to continue to beat us up, we're so polarized and it's terrible to be polarized and therefore we should just get in line and listen to Joe Biden. Lou? Well, you know, I, I have to credit you, actually, for kicking my thinking on this issue years ago. Um, I think that the largest sort of path I can stretch as to why we are in the place we are in regard to polarization is that we directly elect senators and we have introduced a primary system at the federal level and at other levels as well in which only voters from that primary – from that excuse me, that political party – are eligible to vote and then determine who is on the ballot for each party. It's a wonderful system if you like more democracy in the largest sense, right? If you want more individual civic participation and you think Direct that that democracy is a, is and you think that that is a monotonic good, one that has no subject to diminishing returns and it makes a lot of sense. But what that also does is it means that only a small fraction of each party, the most driven and motivated, actually turn out to the polls. And so consequently, those that we have on the stage when it comes time for a general election very often bear no resemblance to what the median voter is thinking about and instead are heavily driven by what some might describe as fringe policy, either on the hard left or on the hard right. So that the idea, the equilibrium, if I may, is really a scenario in which power seesaws between the two party that whoever can manage to get 50% plus one crams in as many hard ideological bent uh, uh, legislation as they can to try and secure their strategic position. And then it flips and then it reverses. And all that happens is we seem to be screaming at ourselves in the eyes of the world. So what we've seen, if you sort of take that idea for a moment, Lou, and examine it. Uh, we had uh, the choices of the political parties that were driven less by direct primaries and more by uh, having conventions right. uh, where states would get together and the various uh, participants would then have to meet and compromise to select the candidate that could pull together the largest batch of the uh, group's uh, views and and uh, policy matters. Closed doors offer a fascinating sort of political reprieve. So believe it or not, here we are talking about uh, the improvements had in a uh, liberal democratic society by smoke-filled rooms. Go ahead and uh, elucidate that. So, so why is a smoke-filled back room where deal-making can happen appropriate? Because it allows defection, right? If, if I'm on the left or on the right, wherever I am, I am obligated to respond to that that primary election system, and I'm obligated to take positions that are disproportionately closer to the extreme than a poll or a sample of the voter base should suggest that I would take. Comes with a nice sort of reinforcing self-cycle there. And so what a smoke-filled room allows you to do is reach across the aisle and come within to a your consensus party. within your party and across it very often, um, depending on the room and the level of smokiness, uh, and then actually make the kind of compromises that drive policy and drive strategic vision. 
um, it's not it's not clear. I don't think that our quality of executive and certainly legislative decision making has gone up over the last sixty years. Well, Polling data and confidence in Congress is now at an all-time low and has been falling since the 70s. So here we have uh, a crazy idea coming out of Lewis Hallman saying that we're better off having smoke-filled rooms. In some circumstances. Uh, smoke it's not carte blanche for smoke-filled rooms. They need to be moderated as well. Uh, so we have moderated smoke-filled rooms. The point being is the press has made much of the fact that we're now polarized, and their point in making that... Uh, a big issue is financial. They like stories that tell us how crazy we are and how the end is nigh. If and we can remove the ability for that to be the case, we can get a more stable sense of ourselves. So we have primaries coming up, for example, in the state of Arizona for state and, and national offices that we'll have to decide. And the question is, can we uh, on the right select candidates that are more likely to draw a bigger tent for our crowd and sustain their decision points longer. We'd like you to join the conversation here on KKNT 960, The Patriot. Give us a call at 602-508-0960. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We're filling in for our friend Seth Liebson here on The Seth Liebson Show. We'll be right back. It's tough to cut off such a great voice, the great Frank Sinatra. Uh, especially in honor of Seth, who's uh, a massive, a, a very large fan of Frank Sinatra. And if it gets any hotter this unless, summer, we could use a large fan. Unless, of course, it bothers you that, Tom- that Ptolemy was the one who figured out that the world was round, not Christopher Columbus. Uh, well, that's all right. Uh, Chris, Chris was just trying to follow the right orders. Right, right. Uh, so we were chatting about how smoke-filled rooms might actually advance the cause of democracy. And maybe that's not obvious, but the point Lewis was referring to is one I've made before about how our founders understood that direct democracy was quite dangerous and that, in fact, in the history of humanity, direct democracy had failed uh, in every instance because the moment you get it larger than a household, you end up with the usual uh, problem of uh, two wolves arguing with a sheep about what's for dinner. Right. Well, one of the it's actually a really important point because it underlines the fact that systems have very, very different outcomes and very different levels of, of socioeconomic stability at different scales. A household dynamic works well for a group of five people, but it collapses under its weight if you've got 500 people in the household. And so the founders understood, and James Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers extensively about the different models that they had examined, the failures that had resulted from those models, Athens being one of them as an example of direct democracy, not lasting but a few decades, and that the problem is when you have direct action by people and they become vested in outcomes, they're uh, the human condition dictates that they will do things, say things, and take actions that ultimately destroy the very basis for the freedoms that give rise to the ability to create the democracy in the first place. Well, if you take 100 people in a meeting and give them six minutes each to speak on the issue being discussed and voted, you're going to be in that meeting for 10 hours and only have resolved a single issue. Right? Uh, that's a fine point. As I used to say when I was mayor of the city and my children used to laugh at this, uh, everything may have been said, but it's not been said by everybody. Right. And that's what then tends to cause 
HOA meetings, the the uh, the most difficult example of direct democracy on the planet. Anybody who's ever served on an HOA board understands that. Anybody who has ever attended an HOA meeting gets that. Overstretched direct democracy has a, a damning tendency, as evinced possibly by many HOAs, towards authoritarianism and cults of personality. Indeed. And so they might decide everybody has to have a flag in their yard, or they might decide nobody gets to have a flag in their yard. So we end up with state legislation. Tyrants from Pericles to Becky. Yes, indeed. (laughs) And so if you've ever attended exercise in direct democracy, you might understand Lewis's point from that uh, issue. And so as a result, the founders created this society uh, to lead the federal government at a very light place, meaning that it would not get involved in too many things. And so the, the Constitution listed out the kinds of things that the federal government could get involved in. And then from that created a system that would try to keep itself balanced from destroying the structure itself. We had the direct election of House members every two years from uh, uh, the districts from which those House members would uh, exist, and they would be effectively directly elected. But senators, the other branch of legislation, those were elected not by voters themselves, but by the legislators from the legislatures of the states. A function of indirect democracy, the parallels of which are many in, for instance, Renaissance Italy. You see a lot of those styles of, of organization evolve from that period. And so our founders looked upon that option <clears throat> as the means by which they would assure that we would not use government power to appoint to destroy the structure itself. And as a result, those who immediately use the power to advance their cause are also using that power to destroy the very structure that protects their ability to use the power in the first place. And the more that happens, the weaker the structure gets to the point that it eventually breaks. And we are facing some of those kinds of issues. And so the point Lewis and I are making is that the effort on the left to democratize everything, meaning exercise more direct democracy in greater opportunities, uh, may actually be the end of the structure that allows the federal government, as opposed to the state and local governments, the federal government to stay in its lane and limit its areas of functionality and keep from destroying the structure of our whole U.S. system. Social media is a wonderful example of user input run amok, I think, that it is it is difficult to imagine us being more significantly more informed or socially happy or or uh, uh, less aware of our division division through the single process of just allowing more of us to speak and hear one another so it's it's curious that as our ability to interact with more and more and more people comes and to perceive more and more news stories that our ability to First of all, have that the content of those stories selected for us by outsiders and also the fact that they are, num- they are overwhelming in number. Precisely. It makes it very easy for our democracy to be deranged. You know, if elections are tight, if they're contentious, going from a, a 51-49 split and reversing that only, cl- only requires a shift of two percentage points well within the margin of error for any statistical survey of political inclination. doesn't even require 2%. It requires 1% plus 1. Yes, indeed. You're not wrong. And so as a result, you can swing those outcomes. And in fact, isn't it interesting that... uh, The larger, more and more centralized our system becomes, the more 
easily we are able to hand over the keys to subvert our own decision making. But the direction I was heading with that point is that isn't it interesting that the Biden administration and those on the left insist that they have a mandate for change and direction when this is the tightest legislative balance uh, and uh, control period we've ever faced effectively and that we have the Senate majority by one uh, and a very narrow House majority uh, for the Democrats, highly likely to be swung in the opposite direction here at the next election. That is historically precedent, yes. You typically see a resurgence against the party in charge during the midterms. And as a result, you will end up with uh, the efforts on the left to make history by changing the way the system works permanently so that they can hang on to the very limited extent of their power that they've been able to cobble to themselves over the last election. That is why Lewis and I are advocating for us to take a closer look at how systems are working and look for ways in which we can have meaningful impact and better discussion and debate that will be more stable long term with the greatest import to look with an eye towards how the system's structure is supposed to work and sustain it. That the overuse of government power by government, uh, elected government officials to change the system, to, to swing the power to their direction, is exactly what our founders warned us against. And the, the other thing I think that we need to keep in mind is the ethical obligation, and I've said this before this section, but the ethical obligation of a state to hold the interests of its citizenry in its in its in the front of its mind that our actions ought to be directed towards a better world for Americans not necessarily a better Europe uh, a better world for Europe through American security largesse there is a there is a room for us honestly and openly to prioritize our self-interest in fact uh, general maguire made that point that the us military is to be used for the benefit of the united states and should not uh, be taken under the control of any third party. I think he's uh, pointing out that NATO seeks to have greater control and the Europeans are quite furious. Right. But they've all joined their militaries together in some ways and the U.S. is still out on its own. NATO, the the organization that allows Germany to spend 0.7% of its GDP on defense while castigating the U.S. for being an imperialistic expansionist power. We'll be right back. We are going to say, say, say what we're going to say. And I think Lewis uh, finished off the last segment talking about the fact that the U.S. should be dictating its course. And I think he was making reference to NATO. Lou, you want to pick up on that theme? Sure. So, you know, we live in a world where, where I would argue that the U.S.'s strategic priority has been on drift, on autopilot for the last... 40 years. You know, we defeated the big bad at the center of the stories that we tell ourselves. You know, we, we won that narrative, but... The big bad bear, typically. Being, the being center, exactly, right? being the Soviet Union. But what we failed to do in the aftermath of that victory was to tell ourselves or come up with a new story that makes sense of our role in the world as what you could call a providential power, right? A, a people and a society with a mission, right? Whether it is to be the shining city on the hill or maximize its human flourishing and pluralism within its borders. There is room, I think, to have a new conversation about what it is we want going into the 21st century in such a way that we are, we distance ourselves from the shackles and the old memories and the autopilots that we have, we have inherited 
from the 20th century. Examples? Well, I think that our naval procurement, for instance, is centered around buying a new aircraft carrier every 20 years, as it has been since the Bretton Woods Agreement was signed in 1948. It was principally designed to do that in order to control the flow of trade and build up the first world, which people forget is not an economic descriptor, but a political one, right? We wanted every country on earth to get what they had wanted in World War II, particularly the Germans and the Japanese. Give them strategic access to other markets guaranteed by American shipping and naval power. And in exchange, you get up and you're in front with the Soviets. That was the deal. The deal now is over and we need a new one. And China has been playing into that, which China of course has. is uh, dependent on the fact that the U.S. has controlled that new world order after the Bretton Woods right. agreement, that it has kept the seas uh, saleable uh, for uh, trade but from China. Which China itself could not have done on its own accord. Half of the Chinese Navy is unable to go more than uh, a thousand nautical miles from its own coastline. It lacks the ability to do long-run convoy. I'm sorry, 90% of the Chinese shipping is, is unable to go more than 1,000 miles from its own coastline. They can't run the long-run convoy protection that they would need to keep their, their societies functioning in the event of any kind of conflict vis-a-vis -vis energy supplies over near the Persian Gulf. And so your point would be, looking at that international landscape, that it's time for the U.S. conversation to take place, right. to talk about what our country should be, and how we should be doing it. Uh, certainly, General McGuire in, uh, in the 3 o'clock hour talked about the fact that we need to look at how the U.S. military currently is deployed, what we're spending on it, and that uh, having the largest standing army is, as our founders understood, Jefferson and Hamilton, one of the greatest threats to our uh, independence and liberty. That and excessive taxation. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We're filling in for Seth Liebson today on the Seth Liebson Show here at KKNT 960, The Patriot. At the top of the hour, we're going to go back to our stock and trade, COVID. We'll look forward to having you join our conversation. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.